The small but potent Defense Innovation Unit has reached stride as it enters its eighth year in business. Among other activities, the DIU uses a technique known as Other Transaction Authority to quickly get new technology prototypes built for military purposes. Last year, those awards reached a billion dollars. Here with this and other highlights in its latest annual report, Acting DIU Director Mike Madsen. Mr. Madsen, good to have you with us. Great. Thanks, Tom. Thrilled to be here and happy to talk about our annual report. Thanks for having me. And before we get to the numbers and the acquisitions, transactions, give us a sense of some of the exciting technologies that were actually realized into prototype or into production in the past year via DIU. You bet, Tom. Uh, so we transitioned 17 projects this year, which is a record for us. And some of the exciting ones are things like what we call peacetime indications and warning, which is leveraging uh, commercial technology is what we do largely. But in this case, that technology is commercially available overhead satellite imagery. There's a growing market for that in the commercial sector. Real estate developers are interested in persistent overhead imagery to look at parking lots with cars, uh, to make sure the real estate is being used most effectively, or futures traders want to see the level of resources and tanks around the world for their positioning. But what we use it for is we use it for uh, real-time situational awareness uh, around the world, where we have persistent capability to do that. Another very exciting one that we transitioned this year is called the Rapid Assessment of the Threat Environment. And this is incredibly powerful because it was a project that was wrapping up at the end of 2019. And this was a project using wearables and AI to be able to detect infectious diseases. So think um, pre-COVID. So 2019, that was things like the flu, where it would be important for a commander to know infection rates before it spread through uh, a large organization. So you could isolate those folks. Well, we were able to pivot very, very quickly in 2020 and apply this to COVID. And we got to the point where we were able to identify folks that were COVID positive 48 hours before testing and 48 hours before symptom onset. So if you think of the power of that from a readiness perspective, we were able to isolate those folks and limit the infection flowing through uh, large organizations. That one's really a big contribution to readiness, I would say. Absolutely. You're able to isolate folks and limit the spreading of infectious diseases through a squadron, a division, etc., to make sure you, you uh, maintain the highest levels of readiness. But no magic death ray that can take out an entire enemy platoon yet. Right. No, no, nothing like that. That's still uh, that's still under wraps. <laughs> All right. And I wanted to talk about the OTAs, uh, that, that billion dollar figure. Is that cumulative in the life of DIU or is that just the last year? Uh, no, that's cumulative. Backing up for a little bit of context, you're exactly sure. right. DIU uses other transaction authority, which is a fully congressionally authorized way to procure goods and services for the department. And what we do is we leverage our DOD partners funding. So they have skin in the game when we do their prototypes so that, that we know there's a clear path to production on the backside so we can get that technology into the hands of the men and women in uniform. But also for our commercial partners, it's a path to recurring revenue, which is important to them, and increase that connective tissue between government and the private sector. And so that $1.2 billion exactly right is cumulative over the life of DIU uh, since we started in 2016. And I think maybe the lesser known part of DIU is that you also can do production contracts to move those innovations that were maybe acquired initially under the OTA to production level and talk about some of the highlights of the past year that moved from prototype to production. Well, and that's the power of the other transaction authority, Tom, that you mentioned before, is our authority to operate allows us to move from prototype to production without recompeting 
provided that the prototype was awarded under competitive circumstances. And we developed a competitive commercial solutions opening process that meets that competitive requirement. Now, our commercial solutions opening, or CSO, it increases transparency, it increases competition for our DoD partners so we can continue to drive the cost down and be as effective and efficient as possible. But what it also does is it lowers barriers to entry to the defense marketplace for some of those non-traditional companies. We simplify the process. Uh, we make it easier. We make it cheaper. We, we recognize the opportunity cost just to participate in the defense marketplace for some of these non-traditional. So all of that is designed to increase the participation rate. We're speaking with Mike Madsen. He is acting director of the Defense Innovation Unit. And I wanted to ask about, just to take an aside here for a moment, there was a lot of commercial support to Ukraine that you are reporting in the past year as part of the annual report, pretty high up in there. Just give us a highlight there. Well, Ukraine is a fantastic opportunity to watch us how uh, dual-use technology is integrated into warfighting. And I think it's pretty clear that it's not going to be the first one that develops this technology, but the way that we integrate it is going to lead to success on the battlefield. So we've been able to uh, observe a couple things. A few lessons we've learned is, number one, uh, democratization of this technology. The dual-use commercial technology, it's out there. It's widely available. We don't get a vote in how our adversaries are going to use it, so we need to make sure we're evaluating it real time and pulling it in and making that minor customization, proving through prototyping before our adversaries can. We also need to identify those technologies that we want to protect much more closely. Another lesson learned is, uh, and I used overhead imagery, I'll use that example again, uh, the classification level. So that overhead imagery that's widely available now is not classified, so it can be put out to the world. And as we saw in Ukraine, that commercially available overhead imagery was available to be broadcast to the world to counter Russian narratives by uh, photographic evidence showing what's really happening on the ground instead of something that they were trying to uh, construct or engineer. Yeah, so the companies that provided through you to Ukraine this remote sensing and observability, let's say, platforms that really, I guess, leveraged the power that they could get out of the weapon systems that we shipped to them. They could aim at where the bad people were. Right, exactly. That integration of the dual-use technology. Now, for us, we have not provided anything directly to uh, Ukraine. We work with our uh, global combatant commanders, our regional combatant commanders. So we sure. work with UCOM, very closely with UCOM there. But what's interesting for us to watch is that vendors are selling direct to the Ukrainian government uh, with some of those capabilities. Right. And that's one of the complications that a lot of independent DOD agencies face not a challenge, but maybe it's challenging, is that so much happens through the combatant commands, which are joint. And somehow you have to work in what you're doing with what the combatant commands need. And it gets to be a little bit of a complicated shopping mall, if you will. Right. And in fact, our transition rate is about 50%. A couple of years ago, we took a look at our transition rate and what we needed to do to increase it. It was about 35%. And one of the things we found and one of the outcomes was we developed a defense engagement team that is focused on engaging with our DOD partners. We focus on the services agencies, but also we engage with the combatant commands uh, because that's where the requirements are generated. That's where the rubber meets the road. The war fighting needs are really identified there and then passed back to the services for the organized training and equip function. So we engage everywhere we can to make sure that we are in a position to articulate the state of the art of the commercial technology and how it might help solve some DOD problems. And do the requirements for what you might want to issue an OTA and discover some innovation, do they come from the combatant commands or do they come from the individual forces? 
Well, we found a successful project has three elements. We need an end user that understands the problem and is going to use it. We need programmatic support and we need command support. And so what we do is then we take that, we work with that vertical and we get away from a long, arduous requirements document and go to a simply stated problem statement. Now, the problem that we put out to our commercial partners to come up with innovative solutions is rooted in uh, the requirements of the service, but we simplify it. We take out the Pentagon jargon, we take out the acronyms, and we put it in a language that our commercial partners understand and can respond to. And do you ever get into like very small issues, requirements that maybe an individual soldier or some unit or you know a pilot identified. If we enlarge, I'm thinking of like in World War II, some countries needed bigger trigger guards on pistols so you could get your hand through there with a glove on, that kind of thing. Does it ever get that fine-grained? We do look for any problems that the end users are having, but as we go through a very deliberate process, it's called our project decision board. It's the process by which we take on projects. And we're at the point now where we can take on some of those one-off projects, but largely we look for those challenges that can scale across the department, across platforms, across services. A couple examples I'll give. We completed a project uh, using AI. It's predictive maintenance uh, as the name of the project that we took on. It started with the Air Force. Uh, and again, if you think about it, it's using AI to predict uh, maintenance failures on uh, parts of uh, very complex machines with many moving pieces and parts. And we started with the Air Force. We took it to production with the Air Force. And then we looked at the Army and the Navy and we said, geez, I bet there are probably some challenges here we could solve. So then we engaged with the Army and the Navy to scale that across those platforms, not only the ones that can fly in the Army, but also those wheeled vehicles as well. Those are the projects we look for. Those are the home runs, as we call them. But that's not to say we won't take on some of the uh, one-off projects as well. Right. Something small could have enterprise-wide application, like a better shoelace or something. And outsized impact. Exactly right. And if you would just discuss the issue of, we've talked about dual-use technologies from small and large companies. And this is in the context of the shrinking small business sector of the defense industrial base. I guess the large businesses are shrinking too in terms of numbers of companies. Is it a strategy of DIU to help increase that or is that a byproduct of what you do or do you think about that? Well, what we look for is the non-traditional companies. And in fact, our authority to operate specifically calls out non-traditional companies. But there's also provisions for us to partner with the traditional companies, systems integrators. And, and look, the modernization of the department is going to take all players at all strata. But what we are very excited about is that we have been able to bring in a large number of non-traditional companies as well as first-time vendors. So these are vendors that have evaluated the, what is it now, $820 billion defense market marketplace, previously said, no, thanks. We have a robust commercial consumer base, so we don't necessarily need to bring our technology to you. We've been able to change their minds, show them that it's not complex. There is a a path that we can illuminate to the defense marketplace. They've been able to bring that technology and get it in the hands of the men and women in uniform. Sounds like there's an orientation toward trying to find small, but non-traditional doesn't have to be small. I mean, maybe something at Procter & Gamble, which is not what you think, I just made that up as a defense supplier, but it's non-traditional in the sense that it's not Lockheed or General Dynamics. Exactly right. We don't focus on the the size of the company, but rather the the non-traditional and the technology. Uh, In fact, I think three quarters of the companies that we have awarded contracts to have been small business, not necessarily by design, but just sometimes that's where the non-traditional and the agility lies. 
Now, we've been able to successfully partner, like I said, with some of the traditional companies for that scale-up capability that I mentioned where scaling, adoption, uh, that's really what we're looking at to get that technology into DOD. And what's going to happen in fiscal 2023? We're well into it, but how are things going? Oh, it's great. It's such a fantastic time. We got in 23, we got an increase in our budget. So that was very exciting. That tells me we're showing value to our important stakeholders. We've also increased the number of projects and we've seen an increase in the number of submissions. So that tells me we've shown value to both our defense partners as well as our commercial partners. You know, but if you think of of where we started and where we're going, you know, in our early days, we were just trying to prove out the concept. We've been able to prove that out. So then we moved the goalpost and said, all right, let's focus on transition. And we've been able to get to 50%. I've challenged the team to continue to drive that higher. But then we started looking at, well, what's our adoption rate of those transitions? Uh, so let's move the goalpost again and, and look to make sure we're scaling as widely as possible. So as we look out to 23, we're going to keep doing our core mission, which is uh, getting that technology into DoD. But we're going to do it by focusing a little bit earlier with the program offices so that we're able to very clearly describe to them the state of the art of the uh, commercial technology and where it might fit into some of the solutions that they're looking at. So the valleys of death will have bridges. I love that you used valleys of death. Too often we hear one single all-encompassing valley, but we've been able to identify multiple valleys at multiple stages of development. DIU is made up of three sub-organizations that targets some of those valleys at various development points in the uh, the company. So thank you for using the plural of that, Tom. I appreciate it. All right. Mike Madsen is Acting Director of the Defense Innovation Unit. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thank you. Enjoy the conversation. We'll post this interview along with a link to that annual report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Innovate your listening. Subscribe to the podcast edition wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost... uh... Shane, it's almost immeasurable, the things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I, um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually, usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone. And I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information. And lo and behold, I, I, I get hired. And um, I learned, 
every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused uh has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of i i you know so often when he'll walk away i'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out and come on you know like look at look at terrell like he he, he faces everything with optimism and 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 i've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the united states and globally you see people who have had everything stacked against them you know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. uh, We get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yeah. everyone is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot but you go to special olympics and everyone's involved everyone's welcome everyone's equal and I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I I, I can't imagine that won't help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get? How can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved, uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age. It's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks 
that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.